guys. I'm Christy, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us tonight. We are reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. I'll give you a minute to open up. It's on page 1009 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. All right. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Poentia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thank you, Christy. Good evening, everyone. My name's Stu. It's nice to meet you. If I haven't before, please come and say hello a bit later. Uh, I'm the youth minister here at St. Matt's, uh, and tonight we get to dig a bit further into our look through Mark's gospel uh, as we head along in our series. Uh, now, we're at that kind of time of year where I'm sure you felt the weather kind of change today. We're getting into the real kind of meat of autumn. My favourite time of year, by the way, in terms of weather. Could do without this rain, though. Uh, and I've been speaking to a couple of you over the past few weeks, knowing that uni in particular is really kind of ramping up, getting to, into the swing of things. We're almost in April, that's crazy. Uh, and the assessments have started to pile up. And if you're not in uni, then just take a moment to remember those days when you had to do assessments and thank the Lord that they're passed. Uh, but as these guys uh, in uni or school uh, have been getting that assessment pile, uh, the, the universities, they pretend that they're on your side because they offer you this thing called mid-semester break and it kind of lands around this time each year but you'll know that it's not really a break. It's kind of just a code word for a week to work on your assignments which have been piling up which all of your subject coordinators have somehow planned to end on the same day. So on you go with your assignments. But if you're like me, when it comes to assessment time, it means really only one thing, procrastination time. And around this kind of assessment time where it all starts building up, the, the level of what I consider click-worthy starts to fall really quite low and 
all of a sudden, before you know it, I'm uh, browsing the pages of BuzzFeed, looking for the latest kind of listicle that sounds interesting to me, uh, and I've got a bit of a guilty pleasure of reading one similar to this. 31 times that famous people were nothing but rude to regular people and let them down in the worst ways possible. Nothing like a horrible run-in with a celebrity to remind you that you should never meet your heroes because they're normal people just like you. Now, I myself have had a run-in with a celebrity of my own. And here's the tea. I used to volunteer with the Illawarra Hawks basketball team. Yeah, it was uh, just finished school, organized it. I just like emailed some guy and he was like, yeah, sure. And I got to go every single home game down onto the scorer's bench, which is a glowing thing that you see next to the court there. And I would sit for free with my little backstage pass on the scorer's bench and like run kind of fan interaction stuff each game. It really was the most useless thing that no one paid attention to, but I got free access, front row seats, to every single game. And one time, I got to meet the Australian basketball icon, Andrew Gaze. There's a photo I took of him. That's from my seat. And there's Mr. Gaze himself. Now, if you don't know Andrew Gaze, he's kind of a big deal in Australian basketball. Uh, He, you know, did well for an Australian, which means he was okay in the long run. Uh, And while I was there, he kind of came down to the bench and he was talking to some of the the technicians there uh, because there'd been some issues with the scoreboard in the previous game that he'd attended. And he said something along the lines of, uh, any chance we'll get a clean run tonight? And he kind of turns to me and he goes, "Uh, what am I saying? Can't expect much from a place like Wollongong. I know. He dissed my hometown. Were his complaints valid? Yes. (laughs) The entertainment centre in Wollongong was and is falling to pieces. But from that point on, I tell you, I cannot stand Andrew Gaze. Like, I cannot stand... He's the worst thing about the Olympics. Every single four years that they're on, I don't want him commentating my games. Get him out of here. Andrew, if you're watching... Sorry. (laughs) Now, (laughs) the passage that we read tonight, it's... Uh, It contains what I think is one of the kind of most interesting conversations that Jesus has recorded in the Gospels. Although, to be fair, if you are reading it for perhaps the first time tonight, I wouldn't blame you for wondering, what's going on with Jesus here? Is this another fine example of someone famous who looks all nice and good in the public eye, but when it comes down to it, behind the scenes, they're a bit of a jerk? Maybe it's best to never meet your heroes. Now, there's two very different stories in the passage that we read, and it almost seems like you have two very different Jesuses. You've got confronting Jesus, a potentially racist and sexist, grumpy influencer who doesn't have time for his fans, and you have comforting Jesus, a compassionate, warm and fuzzy type guy. But both of these stories, they contain the real Jesus, and there's something for us to learn in it tonight. So let's have a look through. We've been looking through Mark's Gospel, the story that changes everything, and we've hit about the halfway point in the whole book. We'll come back to visit it again kind of next year as we finish up uh, in the next couple of weeks. We won't obviously get to the end, uh, but over the past couple of weeks, we've had to move some things around with a bit of COVID shuffling, and so we've been a bit out of order. So here's a bit of a recap to remind you where we're up to. In chapter 6, 
Jesus feeds the 5,000 strong crowd who have been following him, listening to him teach. Nath spoke to us about that last Sunday. Then next in chapter 7, which Scott looked at two weeks ago, so do the reshuffle in your head, Jesus has a showdown with the Pharisees about what it means for someone to be clean or unclean. And in the end, he decides and he declares that it's not uh, where they're from or what they eat that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of their heart. And then we arrive at our passage tonight. Straight from this kind of battle with the Pharisees, Jesus uh, does what he's already done a couple of times through the gospel and heads off in search of a quiet spot. It's like he's at the start of his mid-semester break. He needs a good recharge. Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. And we're not told exactly why Jesus was looking for this peace and quiet, but we can probably guess that he just needed to rest after being hounded by crowds and the Pharisees and even having the threat of Herod in the background who's just chopped off John the Baptist's head. He needs a quiet moment. And it's important to note as well where Jesus tries to catch a bit of a break. Jesus and his disciples head to Tyre. Now, this is a Gentile area, far away from their Jewish people. No Pharisees in Tyre, but also no Jewish followers in Tyre. Maybe he'd be able to get a moment of peace and quiet. But again, kind of like mid-semester break, that's not really how it goes. His search for a quiet moment doesn't come through, and instead the word gets out about him. And we meet the first character in our two healings tonight, and we see confronting Jesus in action. So keep your Bibles open, we're going to be going through these two passages uh, as we jump in. So look there at verse 25. As soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. There's a couple of things to notice first up about this woman. First off, she's a woman. It would have been a little odd back then for a woman to approach a holy man like this. Jesus was well known as being a teacher and it wasn't a woman's place back then to come and say hello, to come and ask anything of him. So that's a bit odd as it starts off. But then we notice she's got a possessed daughter. Now obviously this is bad news. There's a possession that takes place a couple of chapters later where the demon is making the child throw himself into fire and trying to, trying to hurt him, trying to kill him. So she's probably pretty distressed along with the people around her. And the other bad news is that, according to the Jewish tradition, this made her kind of super unclean as well. And thirdly, this woman is a Greek. She's a Gentile. She's not part of God's special family. But she's not just any Gentile. Oh, no. She's from Syrian Phoenicia, which is kind of like Wollongong, you know. That doesn't mean to stack to us, but for the people in the area, this Syrian Phoenicia place was known for its pagan practices. They were essentially enemies of God's people. So she's got this list of notorious credentials that really should stop her coming up and saying hello to Jesus before she even gets there. But she comes with a bold faith. 
she approaches Jesus boldly and begs him to heal her daughter. Now, this little passage should remind us of all the other times that people have approached Jesus with a faith that he can heal them. Except this time, it's slightly different. This woman isn't part of Jesus' people. She's not part of the Israelites who Jesus has been talking to up until now. She's an outsider. But she's recognised something in this man, even though she's only seen it from afar. She believes that Jesus can and will heal her daughter. So, you'd probably expect Jesus would be pretty chuffed with her faith particularly considering she isn't even a Jew who's waiting for a Messiah to turn up. She's just heard about him and come forward in faith. But the response of Jesus isn't quite what you'd expect, is it? Have a look there in verse 27 for perhaps the weirdest moment of Jesus speaking in the whole Bible. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, if your first reaction to this is to be offended rather than puzzled, then I haven't quite kept in mind the context of this chapter. The first half of this chapter is Jesus talking about how it's not about what you eat or where you're from that makes you unclean, it's about what comes out of your heart. Jesus has just said to the Pharisees before he makes this trip that the Gentiles aren't unclean because they're not Jews. Everyone, in fact, is unclean because they all have hearts that have turned from God. And so when Jesus says this, we should be kind of puzzled by the icy response that seems to go back against what he's just said. And there's a lot of ways that you can kind of try and avoid the fact that he's called this woman a dog, but no matter how you slice it, he calls her a dog. Something that's unclean compared to the Jews, the children of God. We've got children and dogs in this story, and they're the two characters at play, Gentiles and Jews. Now, it wasn't uncommon for Jews in Jesus' time, or even in the Old Testament, to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. And it's not like a cute nickname, like Nath calls me Big Dog, I kind of like it. But this isn't like that at all. This is like gross, unclean, you don't want these people at your dinner table just like you don't want a dog at your dinner table. Now, I know some of you are convinced that your dog is the special dog that is allowed at the dinner table. You know, it's got an Instagram page. So he's allowed at the table because he's cute and clean. But no, if I come over to your house and a dog is at a table, I'm going to be upset. (laughs) Now, on the surface... This response from Jesus seems a little bit kind of racist, right? Even sexist against this woman. Now, confronting Jesus in this passage, he probably would kind of get cancelled today saying something like this. So, what is he doing here? Well, on one level, he's making a comment about who he initially came for. The plan was always to reach Jews, God's people, first and then the Gentiles after. And we see this through the whole Bible, and even after Jesus is gone, Paul takes the same approach. But as Jesus speaks to this woman, he's not getting cranky that his vacation has been ruined. He's using confronting language 
to invite this woman into a parable. So stories that Jesus tells that have a meaning embedded in them. He's setting up this story and putting the challenge out there for this woman to showcase how deep her faith truly is. Language along the way. And in verse 28, you can read how she responds. Lord, she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman gives us the model of faith. The model of saving faith that brings God into your life. She says two things here. First, she calls him Lord. She says, Lord, as if she's assenting to what he said, yes, Lord, I'm unfit for the Father's table. She doesn't kind of react or gasp or get upset. And because of her response, we can see that she understands Jesus' statement is theological, not racial. Did you catch that? The way she responds shows us that she knows Jesus' statement is theological, not racial. He's not placing her into this Gentile category of unclean over here, but an unclean category in general, and she totally agrees. She's a sinner. She should not be welcome at the table any more than a dog would be welcome at the family table. But listen to the second thing she says. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, I may not be worthy to sit at the table, but I know that on that table is enough mercy for me. Even the dogs get to eat what falls off or is passed down to them. They might eat second, but they still eat. And in here, she has this wonderful understanding of this uh, kind of ordered method that Jesus has come to reveal himself, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Yeah, it might be second, but yeah, they still get some of that bread. In this moment, she's a model for Christianity. Yes, Lord, I'm not worthy enough, but I'll cling to the mercy that God has for me. That's what we're about. We're not trying to be superhuman Christian, goody two-shoes, get a tick box and be welcome to the table. No, we know that we are not good enough for the table, but we cling to the mercy that God has for us. It's kind of like, like a romance movie. There's that real stuck-up guy at the start and he's he sees the, the hot girl and he's like, yep, I'm going to end up with her and there's this thing and everyone knows that it's just not a good idea because he thinks he deserves it. And something happens and he realises he doesn't deserve her anymore. And it's only in that moment that everyone goes, maybe now you do. Jesus says, you're not fit for the table unless you admit that you're a dog under the table then you're admitted to be a child at the table. When we come to Jesus and we say, I can't find my way, I'm blind, he says, finally you see. We need to be confronted with our great need. We need to be confronted with our sin that separates us from God before we can see the great gift that's on offer, the mercy that is there. But Christianity isn't just knowing you're a dog and beating yourself up over it. If this woman says, you're right, 
I'm a dog, and walks away, then she hasn't understood what Jesus is talking about. Instead, she recognizes that she is dependent upon the mercies of God. And Jesus honors this woman's faith, her Christian saving faith, by granting her request. He heals her daughter. And notice that he doesn't go with her to, to lay his hands on the daughter or say a special prayer to drive out the demon. He, from afar, simply says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Jesus, he confronts us, just like he confronts this woman. His word confronts us. It opens up our heart in front of our own eyes and shows us the sickness that lays inside it. And there's two types of pride that are waiting to trap us when he does that. We can say, what do you mean I'm a dog? I'm a child. What do you mean I'm sick? I'm trying. Can't you see I'm better than him? Can't you see I'm trying way more than her? That's a pride that stops this saving faith. But there's another pride in saying, I know I've got a sickness and I'm too far gone. There's not enough mercy for me up on that table. Now, this woman's a model to us because she does neither. She's confronted with her sin and she rests in the mercy that is on offer for her and Jesus heals her daughter. And Jesus travels to this Gentile area and even calls them dogs to show us that anyone can be saved. doesn't matter how far away you've been or how far away you think you're still traveling. It doesn't matter how messed up you're sure you are. There is mercy at the table of God for you. So we see that confronting Jesus has a splash of comfort in him. This brings us to the second miracle tonight where confronting Jesus becomes comforting Jesus who is right on display. Now he and the twelve, they've moved on but they're still in a Gentile area in the Decapolis. Now word has been spreading in the Decapolis already since Mark chapter 5. Jesus drives demons out of a man into a herd of pigs. You remember that one? And then the man goes back home and tells everyone what Jesus did and home for him was the Decapolis. So Jesus probably isn't going to get a nice rest here either. And again, when Jesus comes into this town, the crowds arrive and another unclean person is brought forward. Now again, he's a Gentile. This time, he's the one who has the problem. He cannot hear or speak. And it's not even the man who asks for help. It's his friends. They bring him to Jesus and beg Jesus to place his hand on the man and heal him. Now again, similar to the first one, there's a great faith in the request. At least on behalf of those friends. They know that Jesus can do something about this. But the response that Jesus gives them can't be any different. It can't be any more different to the response he gave to the Syrophoenician woman. Have a look in verse 33. After he took him, the uh, deaf-mute man, aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. 
So rather than the kind of icy, confronting challenge that Jesus gives in the previous passage, here he's kind of treating this man with a tender warmth. He takes him away from the crowd, away from onlookers, to a comfortable place. Rather than simply making him healed in an instant, which he could definitely do. In the previous passage, we saw him do that without even any words. Jesus gets close to the man. He touches He spits, he sighs, and he speaks to him. Does Jesus have to do any of these kind of movements to heal him? Well, no, of course not. There's no magic involved in this. He doesn't have superpowered spits. Why does he do it? He's doing it for the man, out of compassion for him. He comforts a scared man who's used to being the center of attention and takes him off to the side. He uses sign language. He touches the areas that he's going to heal. And he looks up to God, who he's praying to, so the man knows that that is where this healing is coming from. He's so gentle and soft and warm as he heals this man. You see, Jesus adapts his healing to the people who need the healing. I'm not sure if you know someone who just kind of has a lot of emotions, like lots of problems and troubles always on the boil, and it can be tempting if you know these people to kind of switch off when they talk about their problems, because there's just so much piling onto you. You have to kind of undo the empathy so you don't feel like you're just being loaded with all their problems. It'd be very tempting to just turn it off and nod along politely. But Jesus never turns off. Did you catch what he did? He sighs. He comes into this man and us into our brokenness. He feels it with us. He very truly takes it on himself, and he was so intent on doing something to fix this emptiness and brokenness that he didn't just stop listening. He didn't even stop at just sighing. He took that emptiness and brokenness and sin and pain, and he took it all the way to the cross, where he was crushed under the weight of all our sin, to the point where it gotten so heavy that he sighed one final time. And with that final breath, died there with our emptiness, our troubles, our sin piled upon him. Jesus sees our pain He works to do something about it. It reminds me of John Coffey in the movie The Green Mile. A great movie, slash book, if you haven't seen it, go and give it a watch. But John has the ability, the magic ability, to heal people by taking the pain out of them and into himself. And when he does so, he sighs. It's not a sigh of relief, but it's a sigh of empathy, a sigh that recognizes that something's wrong and needs to be fixed. 
And Jesus sighs. Like this, for this deaf-mute man. He knows the world should not be like this. He knows these senses should not be stopped up in the way that they are. And he feels that brokenness in a truly real way. And he sighs like this for us. He sees our brokenness. He sees our disjointed relationships with him or with others. He sees our problems where the world is just screaming at us that it's not the way that it should be. And he sighs. There's a brokenness that he's working to fix and he will not be at rest until we are at rest. Now Jesus has done away with sin through his death on the cross and he destroyed death through his resurrection. But we know that there are things around us that are still needing fixing. And in this miracle, Jesus gives a taste of what's to come. A taste of a world where everything is put the way it's meant to be. A world that Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied about in chapter 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Jesus is at work. He's beaten sin, but for now we still live in the grips of a sinful world. But he's at work right now, preparing this place for us. And he will come back, he promises, to take his people to be in a place like this. Because until we are at rest, he cannot rest. What do we learn from these two healings tonight? Well, we learn that Jesus can be confronting. If the only Jesus we know is the kind of softly spoken, holding lambs in a meadow, field, you know, Jesus with flowers in his hair, then we don't actually know the full Jesus. Jesus challenges us. Jesus and his word challenges us. And if no part of God's word challenges any part of your life, then you're not reading close enough. You're not listening hard enough. Jesus challenges us. And sometimes he does so almost roughly as he confronts us through our own sin, maybe some part of us that we were just trying to hide, push down and, and keep in that corner, no one will ever know about it, comes to light. Maybe some sin that we've done becomes public, gets exposed. We are confronted with our sin in that moment in a rough way. But the Syrophoenician woman gives us the model of how to respond to this confrontation. We do so in faith. We don't balk and go, no, no, I'm fine, I don't need fixing, I'll, I'll just work and try harder. And we don't beat ourselves up and go, no, I'm beyond fixing, no one could ever forgive me. We say, yes, Lord, I am unclean, but there is mercy at the table for me. Forgive me, change me, and set me on your path once more. We said that this 
confronting Jesus is the same as comforting Jesus. He cleanses everyone differently. You might need a moment of roughness, but you might need a moment of tender gentleness. And he knows which one you need. He knows your struggles and your pains and your failures. He sees that deep anguish inside you and he doesn't stay far off. He draws near. He's tender and gentle. He sighs deeply as he takes on your pain, dies your death and gives you life. In a moment, we'll have a chance to sing about this Jesus, the one who is bigger than the small view that we often give him, the one who confronts us and comforts us, the Lord of the universe, whose name is beautiful, wonderful, and powerful, the God who would sigh for you. So I want you to join me as we pray and ask God to help us See that confrontation, but reach out for that comfort. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge the ways that we don't follow you, the brokenness inside us and the sin that we're constantly faced with, that we constantly try to hide. God, confront us with the things in our lives that need fixing confront us with the areas of our life that we have not given to you. Lord, we ask that when we are confronted, we would not shy away and say we are too far gone, and we wouldn't be defiant and say we'll just try harder, but we would fall on your mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you are tender with us. We thank you that you offer us comfort that you know our pain and that you've done so much already to deal with it. We thank you for that last sigh of Jesus on the cross where all our sin was taken away forever. Fill us with the comfort that that brings, knowing that we are made new, made clean because of what Jesus has done. And help us to push on as we live for you in this uncomfortable world and await your glorious return, and await perfection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.